Thank you, worship team. What a what a great few songs to get started with this morning, and just remind us on what it is, what we're about here. So, as Chris has already said, He is risen. Yeah, you, I'm pretty excited about it too. One more time, He is risen. He is so, so what difference does it make? Why do we say that? What's the big deal on, on Easter morning as we get up? And why in the world do, do we make a big deal of this? He is risen. He is risen indeed kind of respect and response. Well, that's what we're here today to learn. So if you, if you don't already know that answer before you leave today, you will. And then it'll just be a decision for you whether or not you want to accept it. So that's really what it comes down to today. So we're, we're studying the resurrection. We're going to look into John chapter 20, and we're going to study about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But before it makes any difference to us what the resurrection is about, we need to look a little bit back. So to just rewind a little bit, if you will. So this story of the resurrection begins in Genesis chapter 1. So it's not too much. We'll get through all of that before we're done here. You guys don't have any big plans for the afternoon, do you? So the resurrection was planned before Christ spoke the world into existence. You see, we know that this was planned before the beginning of time because God knew that He was going to create the heavens and the earth. He was going to create all of the fish swarming in the seas and the birds of the air and the the animals of the land and then us, man, Adam, and then eventually Eve. He knew before he started that first day that we would need a savior because we wouldn't have what it would take to be able to have a permanent relationship with God in heaven because he is ultimately holy, ultimately righteous, and we are not. And he is a God that demands ultimate righteousness to have a relationship with him. And we can't provide that. And he knew that before Adam and Eve took their first step in the garden. Before he created Adam out of the dust and eventually Eve. He knew we needed Jesus. So it started way back then. And from that point on, it was foretold. The prophets spoke of it. The prophets prepared the Jews for it. God put in place the law to paint the picture of what it would look like. He put in place sacrifice so that we might see just the reality of our sinfulness and the inability for us to achieve holiness in front of God. It was all set up. It was all speaking to this day that Christ would rise again from the dead. So we know that Christ was crucified. He was blamed for things by the Jewish leaders that were untrue. He could have smote them. He could have wiped them off the earth and said, you know what, frankly, I'm just not sure these people who are going to meet on April 12th, 2009, are worth it. I'm just not sure that it's worth it for me to die for those folks. So I'm not going to. Let's start over. We won't have a flood this time. We're just going to melt the whole thing down and pretend it didn't happen. But he didn't. They went out in the garden the night before. He is, he was just before he was betrayed. And he prayed. 
And remember the Roman soldiers came up and Peter, my favorite, jumps up with this sword and slashes off an ear. Jesus says, no, Peter, no, I'm going to do this willingly. He was hung on the cross after severe beatings. And if we pick up in John chapter 19, verse 38, we know that he died. They pierced his side. And then starting in 38, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and a hundred pounds of a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrapping with spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they, lead, they, they laid Jesus there. So that's the background. That's what starts us. So, so on this day, the day of the Sabbath, or just before the beginning of the Sabbath, as the sun went down, they laid Jesus in a tomb. And, and they prepared him, and they wrapped him in cloths, and they put a hundred pounds of spices and other things onto him, as was the custom. And, and they, because they didn't have time, they didn't finish the job. They got as much as they could, but then they had to go. And so they rolled the stone back over the tomb. Took many people. Big stone, they put it in front of the tomb, and they left him there to finish out the Sabbath. And with the plans of coming back then on the third day in order to finish the job, heartbroken. Can you imagine? These, these people a week ago, a week before this, were singing out praises to him. And fact is, the, the Jewish leaders were complaining against the disciples or in Christ to tell people, please, have these guys be quiet. And what was this? I love the words he used back. Sure. But if they're quiet, the very stones will cry out. This was to be. And these people, Hosanna, they were yelling out Hosanna in the highest. They were, he was their king. And now they took his dead, bloodied body off the cross. Just like everyone else who died on the cross. And they laid him in a grave. Can you imagine the heartbreak? How, how they just must have wrenched their whole hope. What went wrong? Wasn't he the king? Wasn't he the Messiah? Wasn't he supposed to save us? Wasn't this the guy that was going to free us from the Romans? What went wrong? How could it be? Where did we make our mistake? He's just like us. He died too. Bloody, beaten. But he's still dead. And they laid him in the tomb. Now, it's an interesting thing because, you see, the Romans actually were more concerned about the potential prophecies at this point than were the Jews. The prophecies said in three days he'll rise. The Jews, the Israelites, they forgot that in their, in their sadness, in their sorrow. They, they forgot. But the Romans didn't. You see, the Romans stationed guards outside. Because they read the prophecies. It's a fascinating concept. They wanted guards outside so that none of the Jews would come in secretly, take the body away, and make it look like he rose again. 
because they did they wanted to extinguish this. They wanted to be done with it. So they actually were thinking more about the resurrection of Christ than were the Jews. And now we pick up in chapter 20. So paint the picture. The Roman guards are outside the tomb. They're thinking something could happen. They don't want anybody stealing the body and then claiming that he was resurrected from the dead. The Jews all went to their homes and probably cried and were tormented and and weeping about this whole thing. But as was their custom, they decided to bring this through to completion. And we start in verse one of chapter 20. And so I've broken this down verse by verse and kind of hit the highlights of it. And what does it look like? In verse 20 or chapter 20, verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You see, Mary and and some other women were on their way to finish the embalming, if you will, of Jesus. And on their way, they were talking to each other because it was just the women. The women were up early. The women were moving forward to finish this job. Where were the disciples? But the women were saying, who's going to roll away the stone for us? That thing's huge. There's no way in the world we're going to roll away the stone. What will we do? And when they got there, the stone was gone. In other accounts, it talks about an earthquake. The guards standing there mightily. And the Roman guards were no slouches. These guys were serious folks. These people, these guys who were set aside to guard this, these were the best of the best. They were the elite. And they were shaken with fear because of the earthquake and that the stone rolled away. They didn't even look in to see what went on. They just got out of there. They just booked it. Right? Probably these guys were sentenced to death later because they left their post. That's a serious thing. The ladies show up and the stone's gone. Now, it's an interesting perspective here. But what about Mary? Well, we know a bit about Mary. We know that in Luke chapter 8, verses 2 and following, that, that, that Christ had cast seven demons out of her. And that she had become a devout follower. We know that she had served or helped to serve Jesus and the disciples in Galilee. We read that in Mark 15, verse 4. And we also know that she's the first witness of the risen Christ. So what a picture. You know, we get so caught up in in the world of power and politics and position. And God chooses the people that are going to make the greatest impact for his kingdom. And what a beautiful picture to pick Mary. Somebody that most had discarded. Many had discredited. But he chose her to be the first to see him. What a great picture with that. In verse 2, so what's Mary's response? She walks up, she sees that the, the stone is already rolled away. What does she do? She runs back to wake up the slovenly disciples. Come on, guys, get up and get over here. There's an issue in verse 2. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So why did Mary go to Simon and, and to John? So the disciple that Jesus loved was John, the author of this text. He hated to draw attention to himself. So he just said, the, the disciple. That's how, we, that's how John refers to himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. He never says his name. But why did Mary go to them? Well, there's some arguments that they were perhaps more, more of the responsible disciples. Well, that's 
has some issue to it, right? What did Peter just get done doing just a couple days earlier? Denied Christ three times. I'm not saying that's all that responsible, really, when you think about it. I'm not sure he'd have been my first pick. But, but God knew. God knew Peter's heart. God knew the struggles Peter had. And, and I really sense that this was God's way of drawing Peter back to himself because God was going to use Peter in a marvelous way to build his church. The very foundation of what we stand on, of the Christian church. He was going to be the, the, the foundation of that. What a picture. Can you see that? Can you imagine Peter's response? What must it have felt like? Mary comes running. She comes to Peter. Peter knows what he's done. There's no mistaking that. And she says, Peter, they've, the stone is gone and they've moved him. Peter now has a chance. He can keep running like he did the three, night that he denied Christ three times. Or he can embrace him again. What does he do? He, he starts running to Christ. He doesn't run away this time. He runs too. I think it's his time of bringing Peter back in. And this is the first time that Mary states. She says this multiple times. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3. Peter and John took off. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. And in verse 4. And the two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. He's just, there's just a little competition in the disciple. And he wanted to point that out. And he came to the tomb first. So here's John, and he's going. And he's got a little more speed than Peter has. Perhaps a little more staying power. But he's there, and he's there right away and gets there. What do we see next? Verse 5. It's a very telling perspective here. You need to listen carefully to these next few verses because there's a lot going on in them. It seems very superficial, very straightforward, but, but it's not at all. In verse 5, so John gets there first, and in verse 5 he says, And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. So here's John. He's excited. He's trying to figure out what's going on, and he gets there and he peeks in. Imagine John peeking in, stooping down, so we know that the hole was not tall enough for John to stand up straight and look in. We know that the hole into the tomb was lower, so he had to stoop down and look in, and he peeked in and saw that, that the, the wrappings, the linen wrappings were lying there. It's an interesting thought here. If, as many claimed after this, someone had stolen the body of Christ and moved it to make it look like he, he resurrected, that's what the Jewish leaders claim, why would they have left the grave cloth there? You have to put this in perspective now. This body's been dead for a couple of days. It's wrapped in spices and things that are there to make it smell less bad. You wouldn't take those off if you were taking the body. You'd take them all because the last thing you want is a decomposing body on your hands without all of those things that are supposed to decrease the problems with it. So why would they have done that? It wouldn't make any sense at all. You'd take everything with you. Everything would be gone. Then remember when Lazarus was raised from the dead. What happened with Lazarus when he was raised from the dead? Did he come out without the cloth? 
No, he was all still bound up. He was all bound up and they had to take them off and he was fine. It's just a picture of Christ and the change in his body now. As he was resurrected, he just came right up through those grave cloths. He didn't have to take them off. He just went through them. Later on in this chapter, we have a couple opportunities to watch him come through walls. Be transported from point A to point B. And point A and point B are seven miles apart. Within moments. There's a difference in his body now. He's a resurrected Savior. He's not the earthly man that he was, the man God. Peter, though, Peter therefore came also following him and entered the tomb and beheld the linen wrappers lying there. Oh, here comes Peter. That's what I love about Peter, right? When Christ is coming out in the storm and he's walking on the water, what does Peter do? He jumps out. I want to walk on the water too. When they're washing at the Last Supper, what does Peter say? Not just my feet, all of me. Clean me all. At the transfiguration, what does he say? Hey, let's build a tabernacle for this. He's always the gung-ho, Peter, in the Garden of Eden. He cuts off the ear. Let's protect Jesus because Jesus needs me to protect him. Right? He can't possibly do this by himself. It's a darn good thing I brought my sword. We see later on in chapter 21... When Jesus shows himself to them on the shore, when he's cooking the fish for them and they're out fishing, when Jesus, when Peter recognizes Jesus, he doesn't wait for the boat to get there. He dives in and he swims to shore because he wants to be with his risen Savior. Peter, what a beautiful picture. John gets there, he stoops and he looks in. And Peter, you can just picture him. I, this is how I picture Peter doing that. Get out of my way. And going in to have a better look. Because certainly there's nobody as brave as Peter is. Verse 8. So Peter comes in. Sees the everything put into place. And then the other disciple, verse 8. So the other disciple would come first to the tomb. Again, he points out the fact. John makes it sure. I got there first. Okay, I maybe didn't go in first. But I did get there first. Coming to the first. Entered then also... And here's a beautiful picture. Read these, listen to these words carefully. And he saw and believed. That was it. Peter boldly enters the tomb and looks. John took a second looking in, but when he entered, he believed. He remembered. He got it. John had the ability to look through the eyes of faith. He could see things had come to fruition. John believed. Peter marveled in another text. It talks about Peter took this away with him and he marveled at what had happened. Very similar to how Mary, the mother of Christ, marveled when all of the things were going on around his birth. The same concept there. Peter walked away and he stored this information, but he didn't act upon the information. John, on the other hand, was all in. He was there. And this is verse 9 is talking about Peter and, and the rest of them. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And if we go to John chapter 2, we have Christ foretelling this time. Verses 19 through 22. And Jesus answered them. He was talking to the Jews. 
The Jews were asking Jesus to show them a sign. Give us a sign that you are who you say you are. And Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Uh, But he was speaking of his body. Interesting perspective in that. And he's going to do this. But do you realize what it tells us in in John chapter 2? I spent a lot of years picturing this concept that Christ hung on the cross and died and then God raised him from the dead and he became our savior. But in John chapter 2, it tells us very clearly that Christ raised himself from the dead. Let that sink in a minute. The, The God who spoke creation into existence became man walked among the earth for 30-some years with us, was tempted by all the same things that we are tempted by. He yet lived a perfect life. He willingly let the Romans and the Jews beat him. He willingly allowed them to nail him to a cross. He willingly died for us. And he had the power to raise himself from the dead. That makes it all the more rich when you consider that he could have destroyed the earth, but he chose instead to cheat death and to pay our our sin bill in full. Then they went home. Verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. It's an interesting perspective there. These guys go off. And, and they're looking for Jesus, but, but they're looking in the wrong spot. They want to find him where they left him. But if they'd found him where they left him, that would have destroyed the whole concept. So rather than going to the tomb, they should have been looking for him elsewhere. But they just didn't quite have it yet. God was going to bring them along slowly. They had not yet understood exactly what the picture was, but he was going to bring them there. So they looked in the wrong spot. You know, it's interesting. They would have never gone to the cross to look for Christ because they removed him from the cross. But they went for the tomb, even though he had told them, don't come looking for me here. Everything before the Gospels in the Bible and even in the Gospels prior to this account were pointing to the fact that Christ would die and be raised again. Everything was there for these guys to see it. But they weren't looking for it. Are you? Are you paying attention? Are you watching? Are you looking in the wrong spots? Think about that. In verse 11, we get another picture now. Mary stays. This is a great perspective. You see, everybody else, the other women, Peter and John, they come. John looks and believes. He sees and believes and walks away. Peter marvels. He's storing it up to process it later. Not sure what to do with it. Mary needs to see Jesus. She's got to see him. 
Now, Christ could easily have stopped and said, I don't know how many times I've pointed out you're not going to find me there. I don't know how many times we've prophesied that that's not where you should be looking for me. He could have moved on and left Mary. But his compassion for us and our needs is so much that he wouldn't allow her to search in futility. He doesn't allow us to search in futility. So he, he came around. He came to meet Mary where Mary's needs were. Like he meets us where our needs are. He doesn't say, look, you'll find me here. He comes to find us. So Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked again into the tomb. He's trying to make sense of all this. How could this be? We laid him right there. And you also have to imagine she, at some level she's saying, and thanks a lot, Peter and John, for sticking around and consoling me. I really appreciate your guys' compassion and mercy. Right? I see there's a problem. I run to you. We all run back together. You look, and then you ditch me out here. I got nothing and no one. Thanks a lot, guys. But she looks in one more time, trying to make sense of this whole thing. Trying to understand how this Jesus that she had, that she had seen cast demons out of her. This Jesus that she had served. This Jesus she had wept over. What went wrong? Where is he? She stoops in one more time. And what does she see? It's no longer an empty tomb. In verse 12, And she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Christ had been laying. Angels in white, just the beautiful purity perspective in looking at that. You know, we, we make a lot of discussions about angels and we talk a lot about wanting to see angels. My perspective is, I'll bet the first time you really see an angel, you're going to cower in fear. You read the description of the angels throughout the Bible, these guys are not necessarily the little guys standing above your shoulder trying to get you to do the right thing. Right? That isn't what it's going to look like. And I can't even imagine what this would have been like as Mary stooped and looked at that. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So this is the second time she said that. She said it first to Peter and John when she ran to them. She's saying it now. She's just crying out, Where is my Lord? Where is he? Other gospel accounts have the angels telling Mary, why would you look for the risen Christ in a tomb? Almost incredulous. Why would you do that? Would you go to a casket and look for your living spouse? Why would you come to the tomb and look for a living Christ? And she's still distraught. And she turned around in verse 14. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there, but did not know who it was. So she sees him, but she doesn't recognize him. She's expecting something different, right? She's expecting that, that it will look just like the Jesus I saw before, but she's expecting him to be laid out, wrapped in linens, although that'd be confusing because the linens are all still there in the tomb, 
So she's probably wrestling with the idea, I'm not even sure what I'm looking for. I don't even know what it's going to look like. But there he stood before her. He was not what she was expecting, and she didn't recognize him at all. And in verse 15, Jesus says, Woman, why are you weeping? Again, this woman, this term woman, we don't use it to be such a nice thing anymore. If we say woman about something, it's usually a a negative thing. But in in this time, this is is a term of endearment. This is a term of, of love and respect that Jesus is using. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, Mary says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Why why don't we see Christ when he shows himself to us? Why is it when he puts people before us and in front of us that are to reflect him to us or to be him to us at that time, don't we see him? Why is that? Well, we think with Mary's perspective is because she, she didn't know she was looking for him in a live form. She'd missed that part. She was going to see it really, really quick, though. But we saw other times in the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. There's a couple of the disciples and they're walking on their way to Emmaus, which is seven miles. And they're discussing all the things that have happened. And lo and behold, the stranger comes up and he's walking with them. And he asks what you're talking about. And they explain a little bit. He goes, what's going on? And their response to him, are you the only person in all of Judea that doesn't know? Have you not been paying any attention to the newspapers and to the internet and TV? For crying out loud, they crucified Jesus. And he goes on to teach them about himself. He teaches them the entire scripture all the way from the prophets through to the time of his death. He explains it all to them. And they don't get it. Pretty smart guy. He knows a lot, but they don't understand He acts like he's going further, and they actually say to him, No, come on, it's getting late. Why don't you stop and stay with us tonight? It will be safer for you to be with us tonight. And they sit down to eat, and as they recline at the table, he breaks the bread, and he blesses it, and their eyes are opened. Now, before, they were prevented from seeing. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him, it tells us. Now their eyes are open, and he's gone. And they say to each other, didn't our hearts burn when he came to us and he was speaking and he shared with us the entirety of the truth of the gospel? Didn't our hearts burn when he did that? Why didn't we see him? You see, he was he was saving recognition for the exact times that recognition would be most useful. The times where it would be we'd be best for them. The times that it would allow them to be able to go and proclaim. And it was now Mary's time. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, can you imagine the exhilaration that she must have felt? Can you just picture that? You're weeping, you're broken, and and you're trying to find Jesus And you've turned away from the gardener and you're looking back in the tomb and he calls you by name. Mary, Mark, Dan, 
Chris. He calls you by name. He was there all the time. He put himself in a position for her to find him. And when the time was right, he called her name. And what was her response? She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognized him as Jesus, the Messiah. It was just perfect, the timing of this. We know that Christ tells us we'll recognize him when the time is right. In John 5.25, it talks about the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. In John 10, it talks about my sheep will hear my voice and know me. We're going to have ample opportunities in our life for him to tap us on the shoulder and call us by name. Will we do as Mary did? Will we respond? Will we turn to him and say, Jesus, my Savior, my Redeemer, my Creator, my King, my Lord. Will we do that? In verse 17, Jesus says to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Not quite sure. I can't come up with a good reason why he told her to stop clinging. I've heard lots of good stories, but the the Bible doesn't give me anything definitive to that. I really think the concept that he was trying to point out here was not so much of don't touch me because I have to be perfected or whatever it was. I think the concept was I have a job for you, Mary. I have chosen you to take this forward to the disciples. And so he asked her to do that. So she does. She responds. And in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. What a beautiful picture. Can you imagine the excitement that erupted in that area? I mean, these guys too were searching for Christ. They were trying to explain and understand it. So she came back and said, I have seen him. I've touched him. He's spoken to me. These guys jumped up and danced for joy. Well, actually, not quite. Actually, what they said was, That's preposterous. It's absolutely ridiculous. We all know he's dead. He's gone, Mary. You can't bring him back. Where's John? We know John saw and believed. Where is he in this? It doesn't tell us that. I'd love to know. I really would like to ask John, why didn't you speak up? In Luke 24 and Mark 16, The disciples basically said, no, no, you're wrong. He's not back. He's not alive. The disciples came back from Emmaus, right? And can you imagine? They're doing the same thing. And you know what the the other disciples said to them? You guys are delusional. We put him in the grave. Well, I know he's not there now, but we know he's gone. But Mary... And the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know what? They didn't need any more convincing. Christ said to Mary, go proclaim the good news to the disciples. And what did she do? She went and did it. Did they listen? No. Did she do the right thing? What about you? 
Where will you go today? Who will you see this week? We've just proclaimed the good news of the Savior, the gospel, salvation, the resurrection, the payment of sins in full. Isn't that good enough news for you? Will you go marvel? Are you going to go home today and marvel about this? Are you going to go back and think about it for a bit? And and the people that need to hear, are you going to share it with them? Are you going to keep it to yourself? So what's it all look like? What are you going to do different? You have to ask yourself some questions. Is Jesus worth looking for? Does he really matter? Well, you first have to accept that the life you're in won't get you where you need to get to without him. You have to recognize the grasp that sin has on you. Because if you don't see that, then there's no need for a savior. There's no need for Jesus if you're doing good enough on your own. Where will you look for him? Where is he? Is he only here on Sunday mornings with us? You only get to see Jesus on Sunday mornings. He comes and he meets with us here. Uh, and, and you can do it then. Or, or see everywhere. Are, are you willing to let him shine through you? If you are his. Are you willing to let him be? Are you willing to be an example to everyone to allow him to shine through you? If you're looking, will you know him when you see him? Will it be obvious to you? Or will you be like those on the road to Emmaus with closed eyes? Or will you be so distraught like Mary that you miss the fact that he's talking to you? Or will you be seeking and open for him to come to you? Probably the biggest question you have to ask yourself is, do you even care? Or is this just a Sunday to come because it's Easter? When I was a kid, we had the greatest pastor and, and this guy held back no punches. And I grew up in a rural community in northern Montana, and everybody knew everybody. So it wasn't an issue of, of, of that. And everybody knew what everybody did and, and everything else. And so on Easter, he would classically finish the message by saying, and for those of you that I won't see again until Thanksgiving, have a great Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day, and, and, and Veterans Day. And, and he, but his perspective there was, you know, guys, you need to care. It's got to get you in the, in the innermost being of your heart. John goes on to tell us at the end of the chapter why the book was even written of John. And he goes on to say, Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. The whole reason we meet today, not so we can get all dressed up, not so that we can all gather together in a big room and sing some songs and feel better about ourselves. The reason we meet today is because we need Jesus as our Savior, and our job is to proclaim the reality of the risen Christ. Because without the risen Christ, you see, it didn't matter. So if Christ stayed on the cross, nothing happened. Nothing's worked. He's just another guy. If Christ stayed in the tomb, all we believe is for nothing. He's just another guy. He just died. He's just like us. When we die, we'll go to the grave. But you see, he didn't stay on the cross. And he didn't stay in the tomb. He has risen. 
And he is waiting for us to come to him. But it's not like we have to go to the ends of the earth to find him. He's right there beside us, behind us, in front of us. He's right there. And he's waiting for you. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter tells us that it's not only that he is there for us, but it's complete. Everything is done. We no longer have to add to this. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So when you go today, you're going to go have meals that are going to be wonderfully prepared. You're going to have a chance to sit down with other people. And tomorrow people are going to ask you what you had for Easter to eat. And why don't you just take a minute and share with them the truth of why we even celebrate this time. And that's the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful that you are who you say you are and that you have done all that you say you've done. We didn't make this up, Lord. This is not of my creation. This is not of my doing. It's not of my understanding, Lord. It's just about the reality of what you did. How before the beginning of time, the triune God came up with a plan for salvation because you knew we needed it. You then went on to create the world and all that is in it. And then you set aside your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. A horrible death that I, Lord, could have life and to have it eternally. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.